Today on the podcast, we're taking a virtual walk on the sidewalks of Vancouver's downtown east side and having a conversation with Aaron White. Uh, Aaron's a pastor, justice worker, prayer instigator in the downtown east side of Vancouver for the past 20 years, where he lives with his wife and four children in a community home. He's part of the team at Jacob's Well, an ecumenical Christian center of hospitality, where his job description is resident theologian. He's the co-author of Revolution and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Kingdom of God, co-creator of The Creative Way Down, Discipleship Resource, and author of his newest book, Recovering from Brokenness and Addiction to Blessedness and Community. Along with one of my previous guests, Dave Carroll, he co-hosts the Two Wise Fools podcast, lighthearted and sometimes emphatically truthful conversation about all things sacred and profane. So uh, how's that for an introduction, Aaron White? It all sounds great. And and, and all those titles mean almost nothing to me. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't... I, I don't care about titles in the slightest, but uh, I care about the relationships that are inherent in those titles. So that, yeah. that all works for me. Yeah. I always tell people that the mythology about me is much more interesting than the reality. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, within gotta... certain lights, within certain lights. I mean, I think the mythology yeah. is is interesting to people who are interested in that kind of thing. But uh, right, so, right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we got lots to talk about, and mm -hmm. uh, we were just talking a little bit beforehand about a little bit of a uh, small circle of friends and people we know in common, and uh, I've certainly uh, known about you for a few years, and uh, really, really looking forward to the opportunity to chat with you today and pick your brain on some things. So let's let's dive right in, and, mm -hmm. and the first thing I want to know is how do you maintain your beautiful beard? What I say, and you have a beard as well, so you maybe know this, I don't know. For me, in my particular case, all I've had to do is nothing. You know, it's a, a, there's a comedian, David Mitchell, from the UK who grew a beard, and a lot of people commented on it. And he said, I feel some strange pride in having a beard, but essentially it's a failure to do anything. It's a failure in personal <laughs> grooming, and, and something happens. Now, I know that's not always the case. I have a friend who just uh, two days ago, was very proudly pulling the the five to six strings on his chin that he's been growing for the last you know six months, wow. and he was very proud about that. He goes, "How long have you been growing yours?" I'm like, "Well, <laughs> maybe a little bit longer, and it's a little bit fuller." But you know, I don't really do much. Reminds okay. me of grade seven when I began to get little tiny hairs growing on mm -hmm. my face, and oh yeah, I thought I was a man by that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hey, um, uh, I love uh, listening to Two Wise Fools with you and Dave Carroll, and mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, one of my podcast indulgences. I uh, I listen to a lot of serious podcasts, but uh, you guys definitely bring the comic relief, so thank you. Ours is decidedly not serious for the most part, and yeah. and I when I when I go places. And because I don't care about titles, when people say, how would you like to be introduced? I often say, well, I'm the co-host of the Two Wise Fools podcast. And that seems to actually carry some cachet these days, which is very odd because anybody can do a podcast, <laughs> yeah. uh, as evidenced by the fact that we have a podcast and we don't really know what we're doing. Um, 
but it, I have to be a little bit careful because some people, you know, take it quite seriously and and they they think, well, because I live in the downtown east side and Dave and I have been in church leadership and so on that we're going to talk about certain things and whatever. But we really just make a lot of jokes and have a good conversation and have a good time. Yeah. And that's that's why we do it. You do it for therapy, right? Really, it is. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't think I was thinking about this we don't think that life is a joke, you know, like we live in very difficult places and we encounter very difficult things and life can be very hard. So life isn't a joke, but we should joke about life. And we are quite serious about that. Yeah. And, you know, C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. And so we like to enhance our, our joy quota for (laughs) the week. Yeah. Well done. Hey, um, you're uh, recording from home today. And uh, I'm curious about, uh, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, you, your wife and four kids, uh, you live intentionally with other people. Uh, so let's start off talking about your family. How old are your kids? Well, we, we actually um, sort of have five now. We have um, a 23-year-old, 21-year-old, two 19-year-olds and a 17-year-old. We, we brought a 19-year-old into our family. Hmm. Uh, and they've grown up pretty much in this neighborhood uh, with my wife and I and community surrounding. So that sometimes looks different, takes on different forms. But mm-hmm. um, right now we have 12 people living in the house together and a dog and three cats, although one of our cats has disappeared and we're we're fearing the worst. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's how we've been living for the last 10 years in this particular house. Mm. And, well, that that's uh, certainly something that a lot of people in Canada anyways don't do. Um, I know it's something that uh, our common friend Karen Reed does uh, mm-hmm. over in Commercial Drive District, not too far away from you. That's right. Um, uh, with a different uh, socioeconomic uh, neighborhood for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, talk to me about, you know, what are the values, the rhythms, the boundaries? How do you get 12 people that are not blood kin, uh, functional and hospitable. And how do you decide who lives in your house? Um, like what, are, what, what kind of agreements do you have around living together? Yeah. Well, I mean, a couple of things. First, I think we are blood kin. I think we are kin in the, the, the blood of Jesus. And I think that really significantly matters. Um, in fact, it matters more than yeah. any kind of kinship that we have from biological or, or even, um, you know, societal uh, mm-hmm. conditions. So, so there's that. Um, secondly, we, we actually don't use the term values because values is something that, uh, really came into, uh, prominence with the work of Frederick Nietzsche, because he said that God is dead and we're beyond the concepts of good and evil. Those are just old forms of moral behavioralism to, to right. cause us to function in certain ways. So we said, we actually create our own values, uh, the things that matter to us. And and so I'd never use that term, actually, because mm-hmm. I, I don't believe in values. I believe in in convictions. I believe in revelation. I believe in things that we have been, um, you know, given to do, even commandments and, you know, mm-hmm. that we've been invited into. So that's part of it is we try to reshape the way that we are viewing life, that the world around us um, the culture around us actually doesn't shape us, doesn't give us our meaning, doesn't give us our identity. Uh, we find that in other places. Mm-hmm. And so we don't even have to be relevant to the world around us. We certainly don't have to to take our cues from the world around us. So we just 
kind of looked at the way that we were living and that others were living, and it didn't seem really good. And it certainly didn't seem biblical, or at least not inevitable. Mm-hmm. So he said, what if we tried to live in a different way? And certainly in Vancouver, it's actually one of the only ways that makes sense. Because, yeah. you know, you cannot afford to live even as a family, just alone, like it's Im- almost impossible. So we said, what if we shared our resources? What if we shared our space? What if we, mm-hmm. you know, shared the way that we cooked meals and ate meals together? So our primary way of gathering is around the table um, that we eat together. Mm-hmm. Different people cook each night. We put money in together when everyone remembers to for groceries and we buy the groceries together and we cover our costs together. Um, we have regular meetings where we discuss the minutia of living together, but also bigger topics about how do we welcome people in? What does hospitality look like? How are we good neighbors? Um, you know, what is it? What, what are our ideas around authority? How do we help raise each other's kids? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we focus a lot around prayer. Sometimes we have different rhythms that are tighter, you know, especially mm-hmm. during like Lent and Advent, we have pretty regular prayer seasons and mm-hmm. other times it's less so. Um, but around the table each night, we sing before we eat, we eat together, and then we read out from the common book of prayer for ordinary mm-hmm. radicals uh, at mm-hmm. the end of it. And then we have a common liturgy that we repeat together. That so that's... The, uh... Shane Claiborne was the Shane that? Claiborne yeah. and yeah. and Wilson Hartgrove, yeah, yeah. So our our copy of the book uh, is pretty ragged because uh, we've mm-hmm. been doing it for ten years and it's got all kinds of stains and rips and so on. And someone said just the other day, one of our new members said, uh, "You know, we have new copies of that book." And we're like, mm, "We kind of like this one." <laughs> so... <laughs> it's the dog-eared uh, member of the family. That's right. Yeah. 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 So what? What what kind of songs do you sing at the table? We will sing sometimes the doxology. We'll sing maybe a Taze song. Sometimes we'll sing just the chorus of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. Just as a an invocation together that we're going, we're about to eat and be thankful together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're also uh, have have a history of uh, singing and playing guitar, I believe. I play piano, oh, piano. and, and okay. sing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was just doing a men's retreat and someone was standing at a window and I started singing the, the bit from Evita um, mm. that they sing to Eva Paron. And because I was trained classically as a singer and people were like, well, where where is this coming from? <laughs> yeah, it's not something <laughs> I I don't bring it out often, but it is it is sitting in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 10, 10 years living uh, in community together in a house. Before that, was it more of the typical model of you and your wife and the kids and that was it? No, well, there's nothing really typical about what we've done in the downtown east side. We lived uh, for 10 years in a co-op. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. the idea of the co-op was that people kind of you know shared things together, but it really functioned more as an apartment building. Yeah. So... It wasn't that great for us in a lot of ways, but we started experimenting with community meals at that time. And we would sometimes have 30 people in uh, to eat. We had visitors all the time. We were allowed to have guests up to 30 days mm-hmm. in our in our uh, apartment, in our co-op. And so we would have people come in and stay on our couch for 30 days when they needed a place to stay or when they needed to come down off of various kinds of drugs and so on. And mm-hmm. we I almost got fired for, for doing that. Um, and the co-op didn't always like us for doing that, but we thought, well, these are genuinely our friends. And so yeah. 
we're allowed to have our friends over. And so, yeah. you know, that was always the argument that we made. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> back in uh, June, I was uh, actually out in, uh, in the Vancouver area. I was at a Mission Canada workers retreat uh, up at Summit Pacific College. And, and so part of the time there, we had a, a just kind of a, a break from uh, sessions to to go into Vancouver. A uh, bunch of people went went uh, on running bicycles, and a bunch of us went to the aquarium. But uh, mm -hmm. en route, the the bus uh, took us down uh, through uh, Lower East Side and and down Hastings, and and uh, I had my eyes peeled, and I spotted Jacob's well, uh, and uh, but. Um, there's something, um, uh, about being on a bus or in a vehicle and going through the neighborhood and, um, just seeing, uh, the intensification of, uh, brokenness, uh, yeah. you know, many, many people who, uh, because of, uh, whatever substances they were using were like bent over and just kind of frozen and others moving in slow motion. And, and uh, it's certainly a, a dramatic uh, scene to pass through. In fact, I, I was thinking, man, I don't want to go to the aquarium. I want to get off the bus and I want to go and, and be with, with these people. You know, that's uh, been my heart in Windsor. And, and certainly as I've had the chance to explore other Canadian cities, uh, there's, there's definitely an intensification. Uh, what are some of the, over the last uh, 20 years that you've been uh, in that neighborhood, what are some of the shifts and changes in street life um, from the early days till now? What are you seeing? Yeah. Um, it's a different view when you're living in it than when you're passing through it. It is. And it's also different when we've had some people who've lived here and then they've gone away and then they've come back for a visit and, and they mm. see things differently where we've seen the it be more gradual for them. It's maybe more shocking. Yeah, I would say now things are, are harder. There's a harder edge to things. Mm -hmm. Before, when we first came, the downtown east side was a very established place and it was kind of known as the 20 block or the 24 block. Mm -hmm. Now it would be more like the 10 or 12 square blocks because it's been compressed. So one of the factors that has really added to the difficulties of street life is gentrification, mm -hmm. which has taken a lot of the space that used to be at least available to people for low-income housing or even for being on the street or for shelters. And it's it's taken that and sold it to the highest bidder. And so now we it's not only less space with the same number of people or more compressed, but it's also you're getting the stark reminder of just how down, how low on the ladder you are when you're seeing other people who never used to walk around in the neighborhood. You would never see people walking around in, in nicer clothes and nice handbags and so on. You'd never see that. Now you you do see that mix quite a lot. And so there's, there's more resentment. So that's one piece. Um, another piece is obviously increased, um, increased issues with mental illness that uh, COVID did nothing to help. In fact, it really exacerbated things because, yeah. you know, the message being stay home and save lives. Well, that's great if you have a home and, you know, you, you know, you're addicted to 
uh, Amazon and Netflix rather than to crystal meth or fentanyl. Um, so we had a lot of our people, they weren't dying of COVID. They were dying of isolation. They were dying of loneliness. They were dying of overdose. So we would have somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 overdose deaths a month. At the same time, we we're having, you know, four or five COVID deaths a month in BC. I'm not downplaying COVID, but I'm saying there, there already was and continues to be an epidemic that people were not mm -hmm. aware of. Mm -hmm. And, and there is a huge mental health, um, kind of effect on that of people just knowing so many people who have died and their own drugs that they're taking are much much harder and they were isolated in a way that they you know they had been isolated before but now we're seriously isolated because none of the volunteers none of the workers were allowed to come to the neighborhood all of the the places where they used to go to hang out were shut down kind of in a day all of the community centers, all the libraries, all the churches, all the places where they could go to the bathroom, all the places where they could get fresh water, all the places where they could get food to eat, all gone. And some of them from the neighborhood didn't even know why. Nobody had mm. communicated to them what was going on. They had no idea. And that was the case for months uh, where they just didn't know what was happening. And so there was a huge mental health effect of those things. Uh, on the neighborhood. And then the third is in 2016, when fentanyl really started coming in, um, we started noticing on the ground, there's a difference here. There was a, a provincial health emergency declared, and we have had some 10 times the amount of overdose deaths since then. Um, it's absolutely disastrous, and it is coming to everyone's neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I am reliably informed that there is no heroin left in my neighborhood. It's all fentanyl. That's what people are asking for. Mm -hmm. It's a hundred times stronger than heroin and it is killing people. Okay. Uh, and that's what's around and it's coming into lots. So when you see people who are leaned over when they're, they're passed out or when they're moving really slowly, that's opioids that they're mm -hmm. using. Mm -hmm. And, and it's often stepped on or put into other things and people don't know what, you know, how much to use and they are dying. So yeah. There's a, a huge difference in the atmosphere of the neighborhood because of these factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, also, over time, I'm curious to know about the uh, tone of agencies and ministries uh, that are working in your neighborhood. Uh, have you seen shifts and changes from the early days till now? Uh, what's What's the the state of uh, harmony? Are are they working together? Is there uh, competition and siloing? Uh, you know, are what what are you seeing? Because sometimes in in um, the care sector, uh, you you can have people that uh, um, are competing for the same dollars. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't think that's the case with Jacobs Well, but uh, but you, you see the mix of uh, agencies and ministries and what are you seeing? Yeah, there are, there are some agencies that play well with others and there are some mm -hmm. that do not. Um, mm -hmm. There are some that are big enough that they just don't feel the need to play well with others. And in that I, I talk about, I'll talk about agencies and churches. Mm -hmm. um, a, a worldly version of success can actually be extraordinarily dangerous to uh to ministry there is a lot of cooperation in the neighborhood partly from the place of need which is i think really good um but but there is you know there's still some of those same issues differences in philosophies and 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 vancouver in particular is a bit of an ideological battleground mm -hmm. of 
um, you know, what is the appropriate approach here? Is it is it harm reduction? Is it abstinence only? Is it faith based? Is it you know what what is the right approach? And and my take genuinely is yes to all. You know, yes, mm -hmm. housing first. Yes, mental health care. Yes, there's going to be harm reduction required. And yes, there's going to be faith based. And yes, there's going to be abstinence needed. And all those things are needed mm -hmm. because this is such a complicated problem. And anybody who's coming with a one tier solution is is selling snake oil. You know, it just <laughs> they are telling you lies in order to get money. It doesn't work right like that so right. we it, it needs to be multivaried multi-level approaches and mm -hmm. so you know partly at jacobs well we have tried to remove ourselves from not those discussions but a lot of those attachments mm -hmm. we say look we're going to do what we're going to do regardless yeah. and we will work with anybody who wants to work with us um, but this is the way that we're working mm -hmm. and we will try to add to what you're doing because we know that you're doing things that we can't do mm -hmm. but we're doing things that you can't do Right. And so let's try and add to each other's strength and and help, you know, build up each other's weaknesses. Yeah. So take us inside Jacob's Well for uh, anybody that hasn't been there, including me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, what would what would you find uh, within that community and, and those spaces known as Jacob's Well? Yeah, it's been going for 20 years. It's in a different space than it used to be. It's had a wide variety of different um, leaders started by a lady named Pauline Fell 20 years ago, who just had a vision for prayer and community in the downtown east side. It's primary, if I were to give a visual, it would be a table. And we just say that all are welcome to the Lord's table. All are welcome to each other's table. Uh, but there are certain things that aren't welcome at the table. Not people, but certain things that aren't welcome at the table. And that's how we talk about it. All are welcome mm -hmm. to our table. Um and that we're welcome to their table. So we know that mutuality happens when the table isn't just owned by us and people come to it, but that we're welcome to other people's tables as well. So if you were to come in on a Monday night to Jacob's Well, there'd be games happening, ping pong and cards and laughter and music. If you came in on a Tuesday night, we have a worship night. So, you know, host. Sometimes it's five people. Sometimes it'll be 20 people singing on a rickety old piano and um, you know, just having a, a great time, somebody banging on a drum who doesn't necessarily know about rhythm, but is just still banging on that drum and, and having a good time. And Feels everybody good. knows each other's names <laughs> on Wednesday night. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Just go for it on, on Wednesday nights. Uh, we'll have, we have a meal mm -hmm. and there may be up to 60 people coming to that meal. And it is a fascinating meal cooked often by people in the community um, you know, it starts at five, but people will start showing up at four. Maybe the meal will come at 530, but nobody's complaining. Everyone's sitting around the table, enjoying each other's company. And you may walk through the chaos, and it is chaos in the downtown east side. And you walk into that space, which should be chaotic with that many people there. And it is not. It is a place of, of deep peace and joy and fellowship and laughter. We'll do some announcements. We celebrate any birthdays in the house. Um, we eat together. There's always enough food. We all clean up together and you'll be hard pressed to figure out who's in charge. And that's right. part of our goal. So when you walk in, you don't know who's in charge and who's not, because we're all trying to own the space. Thursday nights, if you walk in, there's a Bible study, it might be up to 30 of us gathering together, studying the word of God, trying to do good exegesis, and then saying, how do we apply this to our life? And then how do we go and practice this together? And then coming back to reflect on it. And then Friday afternoons, there's a coffee time and hangout. And 
So it's really, you know, but the rest of the time is really where a lot of the stuff happens, where we visit each other and we hang out at each other's table and we go for coffee mm. and that kind mm. of thing. Um, your uh, role on the website is uh, resident theologian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so what does that actually mean in, in the Jacob's Well context? Is that just like them saying, we don't quite know what to ascribe to Aaron, so let's call him resident theologian, or is there actual intentionality in that? I think it's a bit of both. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek. Sometimes I say the title means that that often I'm first in with the, with the mop when the toilet overflows, you know, like, because <laughs> we believe in a very, very embodied, embedded theology. Mm. But it does mean that when we are confronted by theological um, direction or or mm -hmm. or issues or if there's any kind of teaching that needs to happen outside i will often be somebody who's asked about that i help run the prayer room that's there um you know i i do give leadership to the bible study and, and direction to where we're going in that sense but you know there's a lot of theologians in the mix and yeah. uh so it's more just a title that can be given. Uh, it's a it's a funny title, and it it actually it it helps open certain doors, I guess, yeah, where people yeah. will listen to me. But but it's silly, you know. The titles are silly, um, and nobody cares about it. Nobody calls me that at Jacob's Well, and I'm quite happy that they don't. But at, at the same time, you're in a context where, <clears throat> you know, the uh, the theology. Um, is is constantly being um tested and worked out right very much so yeah it's and, not, and i it's will not say remote. this it's it's no imminent it is it, it's yeah. nothing theoretical in fact we yeah. say if there's anything theoretical that that let's forget about it because it needs to be practical mm -hmm. and i and i do believe this um that inner cities everywhere and the poor everywhere tend to get the worst of things they tend to get the worst of the food that's available the worst of the housing that's available and the worst of the theology that's available mm. you know you just you get the same sermon every time you want to go and eat a meal you know yeah. and yeah and it and it's just it's not good typically yeah. so i have studied theology and i do i teach theology at a university um and so i like the idea and have committed to this that i want to bring the best theology that i can mm -hmm. to the people who are used to getting just the leftovers. Mm -hmm. And so we do, I mean, we go deep into things. Um, you know, we will go into the Greek meanings of words and mm -hmm. really examine, you know, last night we were examining the reception of love and the offering of love and where do we fit most into that? And where, how do we grow in the reception of love from, from God, you know, from the point of view of Jesus's baptism, where he's called the beloved son and then is sent mm. out into work, sent out into trial. We're used to the trial, but are we, are we okay to receive love and how do we work that out? And, mm. you know, we're, we go into some deep and heavy things and I, yeah. I, I believe that people can handle that and they can. Oh yeah. 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 I remember when, when I started pastoring uh, my church here in Windsor, <clears throat> there was, uh, I don't know if it was, uh, actually spoken or it was an unspoken thought that uh well you're dealing with those people so you you probably have to dumb things down yeah but what a what a, a false concept of the poor you know that yeah. uh, somehow you know yeah there's some that uh 
may may have some uh, cognitive uh, disabilities, but um, the the profound nature of of the image of God in people, like it, it's it's very uh, intriguing when you get into an environment where there's very little pretense, where yeah. people are not primarily focused on, you know, keep maintaining whatever status quo is. Right. You know, they're, they're, what you see is what you get. And that's a great place yeah. for theology. Yeah. And, and it's a mutuality as well. Like I, mm -hmm. I'm trying to bring my yeah. best, but then I want to receive what they're bringing. And, and it's, and it's amazing. Yeah. There's always gems that would not be uncovered anywhere else. Yeah. you know, except in this space. And if you have ears to hear it, you are going to learn something about the, the nature of Jesus, yeah. uh, you know, and, it, and not in any kind of patronizing way, like, oh, isn't that sweet? Like, no, like yeah. they are really wrestling with the truths of the gospel and the truths of their lives, the truths of suffering, the mm -hmm. truths of joy. And, and, you know, and like you said, there isn't pretense that can happen anywhere, mm -hmm. but, but pretense and, convention um and religiosity can often prevent us from getting there so i think right. these it can be some really freeing places yeah yeah hey let's let's talk about your uh, most recent write the book um uh recovering i uh bought a copy and uh was enjoying it i was uh had it with me on vacation last week and uh then i left from vacation to go to a conference and I think I left my copy behind so I didn't get all the way through mm. so uh but I, I got far enough in to be really intrigued by some things you were saying and um you're uh I thought you you brought a um uh well let me just uh say say that you had me hooked <laughs> Good. um addicted to what you were saying. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh -oh. Um, you laid out an excellent case um, for understanding trauma and addiction uh, as the marks of broken relationship. And, and then you work your way through the Beatitudes to reveal the true nature of how God blesses us through all of the things that characteristically could be destroying us. You know, the things that uh, on a, a human pride level, uh, we would resist against. Um, so let's let's talk a bit about about your book. And maybe a good starting point is, um, you know, uh, in the book, you talked about, you know, uh, the the journey of of your grandfather and what he went through and how that trickled down through family. So maybe start there. Yeah. Yeah, often when I when I go to speak somewhere, I will begin by by introducing people to my my grandparents, and I think that's a, a lost art in the West is mm -hmm. uh, the honoring of who's gone before and the remembering and that as a foundational introduction to who you are. Mm -hmm. um, when we know that in addiction terms, family of origin is the primary cause or primary reason or primary factor related to someone's addiction use and to someone's recovery mm -hmm. is, is family of origin. So it, it hugely affects us all in everything we do. So my grandfather um, was by all accounts, good man, uh, 
Christian man, played in the band in the Salvation Army, you know, but went off to war, went off to the Second World War. And he would very, very occasionally when we were younger, let us in on some stories, but not very much. And the stories, the, the little ones that trickled through were horrifying. And he came back absolutely broken and bitter and alcoholic. And and it led to uh, just really a, a seriously abusive relationship with my father, who later, because of that abuse and because of the example set by his father, himself also became an alcoholic. And they would both find themselves in the downtown east side at different bars, getting into trouble, getting wasted. Um, at the same time that my grandmother was working for the Salvation Army and rescuing young girls out of prison who had been abandoned by their families. So a, a, a family full of tension and chaos, as most families are. Um, and it wasn't until much later in his life, right near the end, actually, that my grandfather, and I don't even know what precipitated it, but my grandfather came back to the Lord, uh, gave up drinking, and and uh, and actually rejoined the Salvation Army band and and died in a way. My my father, I remember him at the eulogy saying that my father was a really really hard man, but I'm glad that he is now in glory. Hmm. And uh, I just recently did the eulogy for my father who passed away in November. Hmm. And the really amazing thing was that I I could say my father was not a hard man. You know, something had changed in his life. He had met the Lord much earlier at the same time that he met my mother, his wife. And he, he was completely and radically transformed. I never saw him take a drink ever. Um, you know, he was a very, he was a very big man. And he could be, he could be if he wanted to be a very scary man, but he was incredibly gentle, incredibly vulnerable, incredibly emotional with us. Um, and so supportive as such a great father. Um, so I didn't... I wasn't affected in the same way uh, by my father as he was by his father because of the the blessing, the redemption that he walked through, um, yeah. that he had hit the bottoms, but he he was coming up and he knew the blessing of the Lord in his life. And so I received those blessings as a result. Hmm. So much uh, of uh, how trauma affects people uh you know, spills over for, for generations. Uh, yeah. And certainly your grandfather uh, experiencing the horrors of war. Um, talk a bit about how, you know, uh, trauma and addiction and, and the sort of the severing of, of relationship. What, mm. what goes on there? And like maybe thinking of your grandfather, what, what do you think happened to his, his relationships by going to war. Yeah. There's a, a concept called uh, the displacement theory of addiction, um, or, which was created by someone named Bruce K. Alexander, who's actually from Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And he says that it's, we, we can actually, we know this, we've studied this, that when societies or individuals or communities are profoundly displaced, mm -hmm. that is their, their connection to one another, their connection to family, their connection to themselves, their connection to the land, their connection to their culture, their connection to their history, their connection to God. When these things are disrupted in traumatic, profound ways, we know that addiction increases. We know this. We have studied this. We have the numbers. We know it's true. And he did studies with rats where it used to be the idea was, well, if rats are offered water or heroin, they're always going to choose heroin. But he knew a little bit about rats. And he knew they're incredibly social, 
active, intelligent animals. And the experiments were taking them away from all that, putting them in a bear cage, displacing them, and mm. offering them water or heroin. And so, of course, they chose heroin because these were they were, um, you know, broken, displaced, depressed rats. So then he created something called Rat Park, which was this beautiful kind of space for rats where they could play with each other. There's lots to do. Their families were there and then offered them water or heroin. And a few tried the heroin, but they really didn't want it because they didn't need it. So when my father or anybody goes off to war, that's a a massive displacement. They're displaced from where they're supposed to be living. They're displaced from their regular work. They're taught to hate and kill. Uh, they and they they see people dying all around them. They're cut off from their past. They're cut off from their future. They're cut off from their fellow human beings uh, because now you you treat them as a target rather than a human. Mm-hmm. And so that all happens. You experience that unbelievable trauma, and there's no time to process it. And then you're sent back home. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the numbers in the United States, it's the the numbers are absolutely unbelievable. The numbers of people who are homeless and addicted who are former vets hmm. and who are veterans of, of right. the, the army. I mean, it's staggering. If we just looked at those numbers and tried to do something about that, it would be unimaginably profitable, really, yeah. for, for us as a whole society. So we know displacement leads to addiction. We know it. Uh, and but But we don't treat it like that. We tend to still treat it often, especially even in the church as a moral failure of the individual hmm. rather than as a displacement failure of our entire society and culture where the answer isn't trying to just get someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but actually to create a placed, a founded community where right. people don't need to go out and use addictions anymore because their needs are being met in the way that God has intended our needs to be met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know the uh, uh, the twelve step groups often uh, and uh, rehab uh, programs that are residential. There's there's often a a creation of supportive community. Mm-hmm. We're in this together. We understand what you're going through. Let's let's help each other. Yeah. Um, but um, one thing I remember recall in in the book, you were saying something about. You know, but it's it's not about just getting people back to a place where they can be productive citizens. Right. There's there's this whole other spiritual dimension um, that that's involved in recovery. Uh, what you elaborate on that that whole idea that um, <clears throat> we're not trying to you know restore people to the the Canadian dream or the American dream. Yeah. But being restored to the kingdom of God, what, what's that all about? Well, if a displaced society, which we live in Mm -hmm. is creating addiction, then trying to make people able to fit in and conform to that displaced society is probably not going to help. So what are some ways that we are, creating displacement that just list a list a few that come to mind. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think our, our entire approach to self-sufficiency and independence is one 
I mean, you mentioned it kind of at the beginning, we live in community and that's very unusual. It's unusual in a kind of white capitalistic Western sense. Yes. Yes. It's not unusual amongst even people living in Vancouver and elsewhere around in the West who come from other societies, other cultures. Mm -hmm. um, they tend to live with family a lot more and tend to be a lot more founded for, for that reason. So what I've watched happen is people will come into recovery centers. They'll come and they'll, they'll do detox for five days. They'll do treatment for three months to nine months. And then they'll do, they'll be in like transitional housing for anywhere up to three years. The goal though, is to get them out of these communal living situations, which all recovery happens in community. But then the goal seems to be, let's get you out of there. Cause that's not, that's just a phase. And we'll get you back into independent living um, where people end up completely isolated again. And, you know, it's it's like people will say, well, we can't have you still in Vancouver in the downtown east side. So we'll move you out to a place like Abbotsford. Mm -hmm. But they move out to a place like Abbotsford and invariably they come back and they go, well, the church didn't really want anything to do with me. You know, people weren't around all the time. I, I had to it was really hard to go and eat at someone's house. And so they felt that that Western individualistic kind of pressure again to succeed on your own merits and not mm -hmm. to become interdependent. And so we, I just think that that's all a false game. That That is the false self that we're all believing in this false narrative, that that's how life is supposed to be. That's what success looks like. And it's crushing people, not just my neighborhood. It's crushing everybody. Yeah, um, but it just tends to function more as a, as a death dealing thing in my neighborhood or immediate death dealing thing. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. That's why we say alternative ways of living and being, sharing economic life sharing social life sharing emotional life that's more how we were made to live mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so that's that seems to be more what the church is meant to be that actual kinship that i mentioned uh like really treating people like family yeah and yeah yeah the um <clears throat> uh the beatitude community right that's right so l unpack the beatitudes and you know mm. what what is jesus giving us there in the beatitudes that holds uh, some keys to our recovery yeah it took me a long time to get my head around this the whole sermon on the mount looked at in a certain light could be considered pretty bad news mm -hmm. because you know jesus says things like be holy yes your father in heaven is holy you know he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're never getting into the kingdom of God. You know, it's pretty heavy going stuff. And then I started to read the Beatitudes again, but from the perspective of Jesus is almost describing his own life. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, who is more poor of spirit than Jesus? And mm -hmm. to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven more than Jesus? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus very explicitly mourns and laments in scripture, and he is very explicitly comforted in scripture as well. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is meek, and Jesus, it says he will inherit the earth. He, you know, mm -hmm. not the way that the Satan wants him to have the earth, but from the Father. Right. So I started to look at these Beatitudes as going, oh, Jesus is describing his life. And I think what he's doing here is inviting people into his life to share his life with him to participate in his life together and that what it looks like inevitably is that we begin from a poverty of spirit together 
We begin by being um, vulnerable with one another, by recognizing we're not in control, that we have set certain things up in order to try and defend ourselves from God and from one another and from the reality of our own emotional existence. And it's only once we let those defenses fall that we can truly um, say ours is the kingdom of heaven. It's only once we begin to truly mourn the brokenness in our life and the sinfulness that we've engaged in that we can actually be comforted by the true comforter. And so I think that this is a blueprint for how we are to be in community, is to be living out this ladder of the Beatitudes that begins in poverty of spirit, moves into mourning, moves into meekness, moves into places like mercy and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and so on and so forth, that that's what communities are meant to look like. Yeah, I wonder, you know, if our appetite for righteousness, our hunger and thirst is, you know, tied to um, our humility, tied to our poor poverty of spirit, you mm. know, because if you could, I mean, I, I get, I might uh, hunger and thirst, you know, for a bag of Doritos and a bottle of, bottle of Coke, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that has nothing to do with a genuine need. Right. Um, right. but when, when I am truly hungry, when I'm truly empty, that's when I desire, well, I could really go for a nice steak and some salad, mm. you know? Um, yeah. St. Augustine said that God has so many gifts he wants to pour into our hands, but our hands are too full to receive them. Ooh. And and I really, I actually believe that you can't jump ahead even. You can't, like a lot of us, especially even younger people today are, are moved by, you know, the existence of injustice in the world. And, and that's, I think it's a good thing in, in lots of ways, but we can't jump there. Yeah. We actually have to begin where we begin. And there's no spiritual journey that doesn't begin with poverty of spirit, which poverty of spirit doesn't just mean like dissolving the ego. Um, cause there's different people who start in different places. Yeah. So a lot of my friends, you know, don't need to dissolve their ego. They've been crushed down in many ways already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of women in the world. They, the starting point doesn't actually have to be dissolve your ego, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. learn to be right. humble, acknowledge that you're not God. They're like, we already know that a lot of, uh, a lot of men though. And a lot of, certainly when we're in a p- places of power and privilege, we do need that. Mm-hmm. So the the spiritual humility isn't doesn't look the same for everybody it 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 actually means i'm agreeing with god about who i am and i'm rejecting the false self that i have created to protect myself and that has been buoyed up by society's story about me whatever that is and i'm rejecting that and i'm accepting the truth about who god says i am and who god made me to be mm. and and that's a really hard journey from whatever starting point you're at for sure um, so, um, 12 step groups, um, you know, uh, what, what do you think that, uh, the church can learn from 12 step groups and what do you think that 12 step groups, uh, can learn from the gospel? Mm. It's a good question. And I think a really important one. I often say, I think there's more spiritual work being done in the basements of churches than in the sanctuaries, mm. um, because 12-step groups take their spiritual work way more seriously yeah. than I've ever seen any church take it. And, I, and I'm and i not backing away from that statement at all. They, when 
when people in 12-step groups go through their resentments and their bitternesses and explaining their their moral failures in every single detail, when people come and do a step four or step five with me, you know, they will bring 90 to 100 pages worth of material of everything they've done and really reflecting on it. I mean, it is mm. incredible. And the level of vulnerability, the level of confessional engagement with one another is is amazing. And I wish it could happen in the church. I often mm -hmm. say to groups, groups of teens will come to the downtown side and I'll say, how many of you have some kind of secret sin or brokenness that you you know is there and it's not really good, but you would never share it with anybody? They all mm -hmm. put up their hand. Yeah. I say, now, how many of you would be comfortable sharing that on a Sunday morning? You know, and they're like, no way. <laughs> so well, how many of you think that every other person there on a Sunday morning also has some kind of secret that they're hiding? Every hand goes up. Yeah, everybody does. Well, does this seem like a good way of living? Like, what if in church, if you wanted to say anything, you had to begin by saying at least your first name and your primary sin or temptation? Hmm. What if, what if that, and they said, well, gosh, there'd be an awful lot of silence. <laughs> like, well, that <laughs> might not be a bad thing. So I think... I think that that aspect of community, that support, that confessional sense that, hey, I'm a I'm an addict, you're an addict, we're all going through this together. The church desperately needs that, needs that mm -hmm. understanding of what surrender means. But the 12 step groups, you know, sometimes they'll they'll use mottos like, you know, we're we're not religious, we're spiritual. And I go, I don't know if I know anybody more religious than 12 steppers, you know, you, <laughs> yeah. it's so religious. I mean, I understand it's not denominational, yeah. but it's yeah. super religious. You yeah. have models that you chant out, you have, you know, steps that you go through, there's a, a structure to every meeting, it's very religious. And if anyone transgresses any of those kind of those, those um, ways of doing things, they're in trouble. Yeah, don't so, mess with the liturgy. Oh, yeah, you cannot. Yeah, yeah it's big time. <laughs> And so I, I think 12-step groups need the church as much as the church needs 12-step groups to, in one sense, to name the God of your understanding, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. I think Jesus matters. Yeah. I think the the way of Jesus really matters. Yeah. But also to say, hey, we're, we are, like, it's not just within these little groups. Like, I went to a, a recovery group once and somebody said, well, you know, I was overthinking things because I'm an addict, you know, and as an addict, as an addict, I overthink things. I'm like, well, I, hmm. I do. I overthink things. I don't think it's because I'm an addict. It's not just an addict's thing. Yeah. You know, like, so yeah. there can be almost this super, like, uh, well, we're in this special category because I've used heroin mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, actually, I think we're all going through very similar things. There are different consequences. Um, there are maybe different levels of trauma that we've experienced for sure. Mm -hmm. But we do need each other to help walk mm -hmm. this road together. And, and to realize that this is a common human experience that we can bless each other in. Yeah. What about the, the whole notion that people who have experienced uh, the same trauma as you or the same addiction as you uh, somehow uh, might have more to say to you or be more understanding than somebody who hasn't shared that particular uh, mess, you know, do you, do you think that, uh, is that, does that hold water with the gospel? Well, I mean, experientially, I think that that's probably true. Um, mm -hmm. I think there is a comfort, uh, in knowing that somebody's walked the same road 
that you've walked mm-hmm. and maybe has is is a step or two ahead of you, you know, in some ways, and says that there's another step that you can take. So I think there is something true about that. Um, that said, I have never used heroin. I've never used crystal meth. I, I've never smoked marijuana. I've never done so much as mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I've had a drink or two, but I've never, mm-hmm. I've never used drugs in that sense. I I understand I had crippling pain a little while ago and I and I was given fentanyl actually and oh. I it didn't really work but I understand if something worked that overcame that chronic pain I understand where that would come from but I'm able to speak and I believe I am and people have told me that I am able to speak to to people in the throes of addiction and the way I think that that's happened is I have spent a lifetime really at least my adult lifetime very very intentionally listening very, very intentionally being with people, hearing their stories here and, and collating that information, checking back with them. So when I wrote Recovering, I made sure that I was, it wasn't just the editors that I was sending it to. I was sending it to my friends who had been through just really hardcore trauma and addiction and saying, does this, does this scan, does this track, is this, mm-hmm. you know, according to your experience? And when they came back and said, well, I'm not sure about that. Then I said, well, then I better need, I better alter that. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I really want to listen to you. So I think that there is a possibility through really careful listening and through, I think, the grace of the spirit mm-hmm. um, that we can engage in genuine community. Um, but it's hard work. It's yeah. really, really hard work. Yeah. 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 Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, but without without entering into it, without entering into that um, brokenness, that sin. Right. You know, and uh, sometimes I think when we think about the sinlessness of Christ, we're we're thinking about how he must have been so disciplined and, you know, have Mm. a strict moral code in that. But but it's more than that, isn't it? It's it's he didn't. He didn't succumb to. The things that broke him. He would not let the image be distorted by the human experience yeah well and i think if if sin i mean there's lots of ways that we could talk about sin if if sin is the rejection of the love of god and the rejection of the identity that god speaks over us Mm -hmm. so when when jesus is baptized and he hears this is my son with whom i am greatly pleased um you know, that's who he is. And if, if he were to reject the temptations he faced in the wilderness were very specifically, well, if you are, yeah, the son, it, it's to, it's to ca- call that into question yeah, and to say, here's another way to get what you know is yours, all the nations of the world, you know, all that's all yours anyways, here you can have this, but you can have it without the father. Mm-hmm. You can have it by standing outside the way father and this is always the human temptation is to have what god actually wants for us but to have it in our own way to have it in our own means our own method you know that's yeah. that's why we build the walls that's why we that's why we turn to heroin you know heroin mm-hmm. reliably informed feels like a warm hug but we mm-hmm. need warm hugs we need yeah. them god wants them for us but if we've only experienced abuse from those who are supposed to give us warm hugs and then we find something that mimics the feeling of it well that's that's the shortcut to the feeling that we god wants for us already but right. it's going to destroy us right so if sin is is that kind of 
walking away from that loving embrace and identification from the father, then yeah, Jesus never did that. Right. He, even on the cross, he right. didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think about my own life. I think about the lives of almost everybody I know and who doesn't want to hear this is my beloved son or daughter and whom right. I'm well pleased. That's right. You know, yeah. no matter how old a person is, uh, there is that um, affirmation from uh, the one before you, the mm -hmm. one who gave birth to you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's something we, we, we can't, we can't lose that. We have to know that he looks at us today and says, well done. Yeah. Good and faithful yeah. servant. You're, I, I love you. I'm, I'm watching right. out for you and, and I'm going to help you and I'll, I'll correct you when I need to, but um, yeah. you're good but it's with because me. I love you. It's because yeah. I love you. Yeah. And, and I think we need to retire this theology that just says we're garbage, you know, like yeah. that's not helpful to anybody. People already believe that. Yeah. Um, but to know that, that God knows you inside and out and, mm -hmm. and thought you worth it, yeah. you know, and to, to die for and is inviting you and, and is saying that big, that great prophetic line, come, let us return into the Lord because he wants to woo you out into the wilderness and bring you back. And this is where we found such great hope in our addiction circles is not, well, just try and, you know, stop drinking, stop using, and then just try and get better you know, and try and be as good as you can, uh, you know, try and get better behavior. That's, it's not really good news. Like it will, it might keep you sober, but it's not really good news. Yeah. Whereas this notion of, well, I'm invited into an entirely new way of existing that is dictated by my father naming me and wanting me and calling me son, calling me daughter. And, and that then being reinforced in a community that speaks those affirmations and encouragements over one another as well boy, that's the real stuff. That's the possibility in the world. That's what will transform the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Aaron, I got uh, one more request for you. Um, mm -hmm. This this podcast is about God at work in Canadian cities. Mm -hmm. And uh, God uh, tends to have very specialized work in, in very special places. Uh, but as I have the opportunity from time to time to get to uh, cities across Canada, there's some, some common threads, there's some common needs. And uh, just wonder if you would uh, lead us in a, a prayer uh, for Canadian cities and uh, for the church in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Most merciful Father, you who by your spirit overshadowed a young girl and incarnated yourself into the world through your son, Jesus. The prophetic announcement that those of power are going to be humbled and those of humble estate, lowly estate will be lifted up. I pray for the, the congregations of people uh, in cities across Canada, the, the collection of people, people who would call themselves by your name and people who wouldn't neighborhoods and communities and municipalities and villages and towns across Canada as well. I pray for these uh, places that 
you would be embedded and embodied and incarnated once again. Um, and that we would have eyes to see you in the places of the lowly, that we would look to the valleys, we would look to the low places and see where you are already at work. And that we would join you in those places and love you in those places and receive your love in those places. And the fruit of that we know or I believe will be that people will see your beauty in us and through us as well. But but this is not for this just the sake of evangelism. This is for the sake of beatitude, of blessing. I pray that we would join you in the place of your blessing. Um, that that churches across the country would join you in the place of your blessing, that we would lay down those false senses, those false selves, those false identities that have kept us trapped in, in the way of the world, in the way of power and privilege, that we would accept your offer, your invitation of poverty of spirit so that we could receive the blessing of poverty of spirit and of the, the kingdom of heaven that we would accept your invitation into mourning and lament so that we might receive your blessing of comfort. Um, Lord, help us, please, uh, to see you where you are, to join you where you are, to love you where you are, and to begin to love one another in those same ways. I ask this in your powerful name, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit moving amongst us, giving thanks to you, Father. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, friend. Uh, it's been great getting to know you. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't as funny as uh, our Two Wise Fools podcast usually yeah. is. Uh, leaned more into maybe the wisdom part, which is probably yeah. a good balance. But Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to know that that you're both. <laughs> <laughs> we, can do, we can do both. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. We'll uh, uh, look. This uh, podcast will uh, be coming out. Uh, we always release on the 1st and the 15th. And uh, so you're the next one. I'll be sure to send you a copy once it comes out. All right. And uh, thanks for uh, being on today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. You know, if you stop and think about it, there are some incredible people all across our country in pockets of poverty and distress. People like Aaron White. Uh, who, along with their families, are living a sacrificial lifestyle uh, for, the, for the sake of the gospel, uh, for the sake of uh, suffering humanity and uh, being able to make a difference in Jesus' name. So please remember to pray for Aaron and others uh, that do this kind of work all across the country. That's, you know, one of the things uh, in doing this podcast, I really like to, to highlight people. Uh Uh, guests uh, that have been on the podcast previously, Mike Morenci from Matthew House in Windsor, and EJ Tupe uh, from uh, downtown Toronto. Uh, both of them have been involved in uh, something in the news the last few weeks. About 200 uh, refugee claimants in the city of Toronto ended up living inside a couple rented church spaces and uh, those churches uh, uh, just providing uh, food and shelter to them. 
and uh, working with the city of Toronto, trying to get support, trying to get help uh, to, to house the refugees. And uh, what ended up happening is um, several of them, a hundred or more uh, being put on the train to Windsor, Ontario and uh, being housed in hotel rooms. And uh, Matthew House here in Windsor has uh, been following them up. And uh, so uh, please join us next time and uh, we'll uh, have a good conversation with EJ and Mike. I'm Kevin Rogers and you've been listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.